0: Hello and welcome to What Leaders Know, the podcast for people on leadership journeys. I'm your host, Penny Beeston. I help people take their careers to the next level. Learn more at whatleadersknow.com. Today's episode is part one of a two-part conversation I have with Shane Chalepi. Shane is an Assistant Commissioner with the Queensland Police Service and the Operations Commander COVID-19 with QPS. Today in part one of our conversation with Shane, he opens up by sharing the adventure of joining the service and making a difference in the community. He speaks about being a young constable when the Fitzgerald Inquiry was driving massive political and cultural change within QPS, and its lifelong influence on his approach to leading. Shane shares insights into his first statewide role as Coordinator of the Queensland Water Police the challenges and rewards of leading these specialised operations. Shane's next promotion sees him more like a fish out of water. He's appointed as the first superintendent within the QPS Counterterrorism Strategic Policy Unit. He shares the challenges of not being able to rely on the level of technical knowledge that he had in his previous role. He identifies this as one of the common pitfalls for leaders as their careers develop. And finally, in his wrap-up of part one of a two-part conversation, Shane speaks candidly about some of his failures and what he learned about leadership from these experiences. This conversation brings us up close and personal to active and authentic leadership and whets our appetite for part two of the conversation. Welcome, Shane.
1: Thanks, Penny. Really pleased to be here.
0: Shane, in season two of What Leaders Know, I ask each of my guests... How has leadership changed you? Given you've been on a journey of leadership for much of your career, I'm interested in learning how leadership has changed you.
1: Oh, thanks, Penny. Look, I think leadership has been um, just like a lifelong journey for me. Um, I think I'm forever changing. I've become a lot more comfortable with my leadership role uh, over time. I suppose one of the biggest things about leadership for me is I've become a lot more comfortable in being able to manage my own self-doubt as well. And it's in these periods of self-doubt in your leadership role, I think some of my best work's been done. I think leadership challenges me in different ways, but it's definitely changed me. It's, it's put a much more focus on delivering with people and through people, rather than um, seeing leadership as an individual role that you hold in an organisation or a
0: function. It's interesting that over time, people move from feeling that they are leading people And people are following them to the fact that they're actually facilitating that process and and they're on the journey with people.
1: Uh, Absolutely, Penny. I, I, I think you've got to feel as a leader, you've got to feel comfortable in your role as a leader. You've got to understand what your role as a leader is around, you know, getting people to deliver at their highest potential for you.
0: So many young people, when they're in school, say they want to join the police service. What's your earliest memory of wanting to join the service and what was the appeal?
1: Uh, Penny, that's really challenging for me. I was in the construction industry before uh, joining the police service. Um, I know right through school I just wanted to do something different every day and I remember speaking with my parents and they'd say to me, what do you want to do when you leave school? I'd say, I don't know, just something different every day. I considered the armed services. I had a lot of family in the armed services but decided it wasn't for me. And I actually remember quite vividly speaking to a friend of mine. I was walking along the beach at uh, Corrumbin in Brisbane, and uh, he said, have you ever thought about joining the police service if you want to do something different every day? And, and that was it. That was, uh, that was what hooked me. You know, the police uh, very similar to armed services. You seem to be doing things for the community. My whole family's always been community-orientated. Um, so it was just a natural fit.
0: And when you say your whole family was community-oriented... Can you expand on that?
1: Yeah, look, we come up from a farming community, a small town community. My mum, you know, always was involved in the community, whether it be for the homeless, uh, yeah, the knitting club for the homeless, or whether it be, you know, the local fate or the local stores. My dad, same thing, my dad was a blue-collar worker, came up in the community, but, you know, he was always doing those extra things, sitting on committees, making sure that, you uh, you know, the community was well cared for and it was born into me right at a young age. I remember my dad speaking to me saying, you may be an individual but you're a member of a community and that stuck with me really strongly.
0: What can you recall to be your first insight into good leadership and how did this influence you in your early years in the service?
1: Yeah, thanks Penny. Um, look, when you first joined the police service, I don't think you think about leadership um, it, it's too exciting. Um, you've got you've got to learn about these new things. You're you're out there. You're helping people every day, whether or not you're you know going to a, a crime that's been committed. Um, but really, you're you're really overawed by the stardom of it all. I think you know you're helping people. You're um, catching offenders. You're you're doing everything you see in the TV shows. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but you really do. I think the first real insight to leadership to me came around the late 80s, early 90s, which was around the time of the Fitzgerald Inquiry. Uh, I joined the police service prior to the Fitzgerald Inquiry, and, and can I say it's a totally different organisation to, to what it was back then. But what I saw then through really challenging times, you know, that's a, a, a real challenge on the culture. And can I say, as a young police officer, um, in the service at the time of Fitzgerald, it was all new. As a young officer, you didn't see or, or hear any of, of what was portrayed on TV and, and it just wasn't the organisation you joined to be. But what we saw at that point in time was some really good, strong leaders, people like, you know, Jim O'Sullivan, Ron Redmond, who stood up um, at a time that was a pivotal point in our organisation. I was a senior constable acting sergeant at the time and um, to see the strength and character of those people to lead our organisation during a period where not everyone in the organisation agreed to where it was going, it was, it was tremendous. That was my first insight. I'll never forget that.
0: So when you look back now as a very accomplished and successful leader and you think of those people in that time... Can you talk about one specific area where you observed those key people really implementing that cultural change?
1: Uh, definitely, Penny. Look, it was about the same time this was occurring. I was only just starting my academic learnings in leadership at the same time as well. And back then it was very much, you know, you're a style of leader. You're an autocratic style or you're, you know, um, a very textbook approach. What what I actually saw at that time was a leadership group that realised if they didn't take the hearts and minds with them in the organisation, they risked losing the organisation. And I remember as an acting sergeant sitting in a room of very senior people who in that time, uh, you know, you really respected and, and didn't question their leadership in any way. And I remember uh, this group of senior police come out and speak to us about what the future could look like. And it was the first time I saw a senior leader stand up and say, I actually don't know what it looks like at the end, but we're on this journey. And there was a lot of pushback in the room about, you know, you're tearing the culture of the organisation apart. And very clearly, and I just can't remember the, the senior officer's name, but he stood there and said, we've lost our way. The police service has become about us, not about the community. And it was at that point I thought to myself, there's a real tackle of the culture. You've, you've challenged every officer sitting in that room to say, stop thinking about yourself, think about why you joined. And that was a real strong piece of leadership, knowing that when those people walked out of the room, the senior people in that room would probably, or some of the senior people would probably attack those people. But what I, what I saw uh, at the same time was those senior leaders saying, this isn't going to be for everybody. And it was that uh, whole thing about, you know, you've got to come on this culture journey, uh, but if you don't fit in uh, to the new way we're going, we're going to respectfully recognise that you've had this long career and we're going to help you transition somewhere else.
0: So is it fair to say that that has informed some of your own leadership style?
1: Absolutely. That was my first exposure and that was that bit about, you know, you need to have an understanding of where you're going, but you don't need to have all the answers. And I think that, to me, was absolute key. The other bit I thought about it was, you know, we were young constables, yet the senior police had taken the time to come and engage with us and talk to us about where they see the future of the police service going. And I thought that was critically important. Like, you can't underestimate the change. We introduced academic studies. We introduced leadership studies. We we totally revamped and made it the professional police service that it is today uh, from that.
0: That's a rich beginning to a very long leadership career. Now I want to talk about 2004 when you were appointed as a commissioned officer and you took up the role of State Water Police Coordinator until 2008. Queensland's such a massive state. What were the challenges of stepping into your first role with statewide responsibilities?
1: Thanks, Penny. This was a a really interesting time for me. Up until this point in time, I'd been a leader within a single geographic area, so one of my strengths I always uh, you know, talked about was my ability to get out and speak to everyone every day. This is the first time I'd taken on a leadership role across the entire state, so the challenge of actually getting my message down from the top to the lowest common denominator in the bottom when you spread across the broad state of Queensland was really difficult. Uh, at the same time, I was asked to lead my first real large strategic piece of work about uh, reshaping the water police for the future. And that included you know the way we did our business, the type of vessels, um, the way we maintained our vessels, and really bringing in a level of professionalism to it and modernising the water place. Um, what I found at this point in time, it was really important to have that clear vision of what I wanted to achieve. And this was probably the first uh, bit for me where storytelling came into leadership. I didn't have the answer, but I had respect. I'd been in the water police you know, seven or eight years prior to this. Um, so I spent a lot of time travelling the state and selling a message. wasn't necessarily selling the outcome, it was selling the message. And being able to engage with people who'd been in the water police a long time but tell them the story about why we needed to change and what the benefits would be at the other end, and asking them effectively to sign up to to the vision that I'd put out there. Uh, it was really interesting to be able to then need to connect that back to where we were going, um, and where the service was going. You know, up until that, the water police was always seen to be this little, uh, was not that little, quite large uh, area, but sort of to the side of the organisation and. I quickly learnt that the staff didn't quite know where they fitted into the broader organisation. And I found the moment I was able to give them that level of comfort and that that connection, that I was able to achieve it. Now, that's not a, a do it once and forget about it. I can remember, my wife regularly reminds me of the, you know, I would trip this state every second week, every third week. I'd be in another town sleeping on a different boat or in a different motel. And that was really important too, is about... Going out, I'd arrive in town, I'd go out on the boat with them, I'd sleep on the boat. You know, that after-hours leadership talk that you could have about what we're trying to achieve and why we're trying to do it. So that was my first real insight to realise that while I'm sitting in Brisbane, I really need the people at Thursday Island, Cairns, Townsville to understand what I'm trying to achieve because it's those staff that would make those decisions every day that I couldn't control.
0: When a lay person such as myself thinks of policing, and particularly in the Queensland Police Service, it's such a complex organisation. Can you give an overview of Water Police?
1: Definitely, Penny. Water Police hold a number of roles. One of the key roles we hold and where it's really valuable is we actually save lives. The Queensland Police Service is responsible for search and rescue across this vast state we have, both on water and land. And the Water Police coordinate that. Now, uh, we take a coordination role. Uh, it's a very technical role of, of working out the best search areas to find people based on their movements. But on water, the Water Police also take that role, but they also take a search role. They coordinate with our volunteer marine rescue organisations and other organisations, both federal and state, to, to run search and rescue operations and actually recover uh, people alive and, and save lives. Um, that's one of our key functions. It's a real prevention area as well. The other area we work in is maritime safety. We try to prevent those search and rescues. So we're out engaging with the boating community every day. We're out making sure that they meet their safety standards, that we're educating them about safety standards so that we can keep people, just like everyone else in the state, I suppose we keep them safe on lands for our patrolling. We do the same on water. But it was one of the most rewarding areas of leadership I saw But it's also most challenging for our staff because they have to be able to make those decisions day in and day out and you can't control that from Brisbane.
0: And your role shifted from State Water Police to Counter-Terrorism Strategic Policy Branch. I don't know if people are generally aware of the breadth of exposure the police service provides across a leadership career. I imagine it makes for an interesting journey how did you feel when you learned your new promotion came with a pretty significant pivot? And how did you work through the challenges of learning about counter-terrorism responses within QPS while building a new team in that initial period?
1: Thanks, Penny. Uh, This was a really interesting time for me. This is a time where, as a leader, I said about the Water Police before, having served in the Water Police, I was always able to draw back on some technical knowledge that I held. I'd been a specialist officer most times in my leadership roles. When I went across to Counterterrorism Strategic Policy Branch as the superintendent, and that was the first superintendent ever to be appointed into that role up until that time, it had been inspectors. And it was the first probably time in my leadership career that I wasn't able to draw back on a technical knowledge that I would have. Um, and it really highlighted the need to rely on the people around you who I didn't know. I didn't know anyone in that branch when I went there. And I distinctly remember, and I tell this story a bit, after the first week with the number of acronyms that were thrown at me, both you know national acronyms, state acronyms, I actually remember sitting in the car park one day thinking, do I come back or do I just keep driving? <laughs> so that was that first... Um, period of self-doubt as a leader. That was that really strong period of self-doubt. And I went to a a mentor of mine within the organisation who I, I won't name, but I remember sitting down and having a cup of tea with this person and saying, I think, you know, they were senior to me, and I said, I think you guys have made a mistake. I think you've put the wrong person in the wrong place. You've put a square peg in a round hole. And this mentor of mine said to me, no, you're missing the big picture you've been an operational police officer, you've worked in quite strategic areas, and you're missing what you bring to the strategic policy branch, which was, you know, policy at the moment being written in isolation. What you bring to it is you bring the operational context that that policy needs to be delivered in. And it was it only took those words to me to give me that level of comfort again to say, I know how I fit. And I think that's really key for a leader, to understand your strengths, understand your skills. But to understand how you fit, what's your piece of the puzzle? What can you deliver? Because in that first week when I got there and people were talking about policy mechanisms and these national acronyms, you started to self-doubt about, well, I'm the dumbest person in the room here. Um, And it's not about being dumb, but I don't understand. And how could I possibly be as knowledgeable as the person sitting across the table? over the next few weeks once i understand where i you know what my fit was there and you start speaking to that you know senior policy officer and saying yes but how does this fit in the operational delivery of counterterrorism operations in queensland how do we deliver this on the front line through the police you start to realize that you're bringing your value to the team and i think once once anyone feels that their their contribution is valuable they get a lot more comfortable in that so that was probably the biggest pivot I'd taken. Uh, the second thing he asked me about building my team, well, it really was about trust at that point in time, but I actually thought the team were building me a little bit at that time. Um, I relied heavily on the team. I, I travelled a lot, again, uh, interstate, nationally. Uh, I chaired a number of national forums that were running, um, and it really was then about not only fitting in your own environment, but then how do you fit in the national environment? So you had to rely on your team very strongly. And I think I was a little bit off-putting to the team because I'd go and sit there and I'd say, hi, I'm Shane. Hello, Penny, what do you do here? And really open to listening to what, what the team felt they could contribute. My second question was, how do you think we could do it differently? And it was really interesting, some of the stuff that people would bring forward when you engaged them in that way. So it really was about building trust with the team and I think understanding, again, you know, that purpose of fit I think was really important there. You know, having conversations with the team and saying, I don't want to be the smartest policy officer in the room. That's your job. My job is to make sure that we can deliver this across the organisation and nationally across across the country.
0: So was that policy unit exposure your earliest exposure to governance?
1: Absolutely. I honestly say today, and I was actually having a conversation with one of my team this morning, and I truly believe the movement into this policy unit was the most changing point in my career. It really uh, got me to understand the bigger picture. So up until then, I'd very much focused about leading internally and delivering internal priorities. Um, I definitely focused around delivering community priorities in the water place. What this pivot did is it allowed me to clearly understand the alignment of not only my unit's goals, the organisational goals, the state government's goals, the federal government's goals, and even in this role, international, in what we were trying to achieve across counterterrorism. So it was the first time around governance, it was around those intergovernmental relationships where you might take a position to a national forum, but at the same time you may, as a leader have to make that decision to trade that away and give to get the better outcome. And I think that's where uh, I see a lot of leaders who are really good young leaders in their own area, but when they're asked to compromise their, their own assets and give, you know, and be willing to forsake some of the outcomes for something better, I think that's the challenge.
0: So what's a learning mindset for any listeners who are on their own journeys to leadership?
1: The one thing I would say is understand your position uh, within your unit. Understand that self-doubt is a good thing and that self, at times a self-doubt is when you probably lead your best because uh, you don't have those preconceived ideas. But also understand where the work you're doing fits into the bigger picture and be prepared to compromise.
0: Leading national committees in this space will have exposed you to the challenges of facilitating across sectors and state jurisdictions. Can you talk about some of the leadership insights you gained at this stage of your career?
1: Yeah, Thanks, Penny. Again, I, I think this is a really rewarding piece of leadership, and it was different again. This is really where leadership of influence comes into it, because when you're leading in a... In a national forum, in a piece of work we did at that point in time, we developed the first ever national countering violent extremism strategy uh, for the country. Countering violent extremism was just starting to appear on the national agenda in Australia. Uh, It was very, very challenging. There there wasn't a lot known about it. And you really did have different views to take into consideration uh, outside of the the states and territories. You had academic views Uh, You had those of of non-government agencies to take into perspective, international views to take into perspective. And you really needed to land a piece of work that balanced policing, because a lot of police look through it from a policing lens, uh, right down to the community lens. At these committees, we were made up of not just police. Uh, We were represented, uh, first ministers across the country were also represented at these committees. So leadership in this space really became about influence. You know, you had different states and territories had different views on the way things will be to be delivered. Um, and as the chair of that subcommittee or committee, you spent a lot of time, or I spent a lot of time drinking coffee. It's probably where I developed my bad coffee <laughs> habit, um, drinking coffee with people and understanding their point of view, understanding what it is, what it is that they're holding on to. And, and what's negotiable and not negotiable in, in views, being able to, to have a good story again, being able to, to have that vision and say, you know, this is what we're trying to achieve here and, and not lose sight of the fact that what we were trying to achieve was a first and say to people, we probably won't get this right the first time around. You know, we need to adjust this as we go. But it was really about up until that point, When you lead in a hierarchical organisation like the Queensland Police Service, some leaders could just rely back on their authority or rank, you know, to lead and say, you know, this is the way we're doing it. You can't do that in the national forum.
0: And would you say that it's less successful as a leadership style?
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I think these days the big challenge now is I think people are, you know, set on agendas or set on paths. And I think if you could come back away from what the personal agenda is and come back to what you're achieving for the community, I think you could walk by a lot of those personal agendas.
0: You have many lenses of a very mature leader. One of those lenses is you do see the narrative in what's happening and you can share a narrative, a story, and that's a really valuable tool to have in leadership.
1: Yeah, I think all good leaders have got stories to tell and you know we, we talk about them being war stories or yarns. I think, you know, to me, when I speak to a lot of my staff, I, I'm never uh, against speaking about the past either, about you know, where the police services come from and, and your yeah, pre-Fitzgerald days. And, and now, particularly with young staff coming through, they don't understand what Fitzgerald was and, and how it significantly changed the organisation. It's the same in the national forums. You, you've got to understand what it is that you're trying to deliver and I think if, as a leader, if, you, if you're if going for that platinum standard all the time, while that's good to aim for, I don't think in practical you're always going to deliver that. I think it's about, well, let's see if we can deliver something as a team and then build on our success and build on our success. And it's probably one of the things that I've recognised going through the organisation. A good leader, I think, is comfortable to come in to a new area and say, You know, the person before me, my predecessor, has done a fantastic job and my job is to build on their success. Too often I see in leaders they come into an area and, you know, they have to build their narrative that everything is broken and I'm here to fix it. And I think that's really a dangerous approach to take as a leader because a lot of your team that are in there are those same people that you're saying delivered a broken system. And I think if that's that's about making the leader feel more comfortable in why they're there without being able to recognise previous success. And I think that's a real challenge these days.
0: I sometimes wonder whether it's because leaders go in and feel that they have to demonstrate that they're capable of cultural change, leading cultural change.
1: Yeah, and I think if you do, look, I often say to people, I, I can never, to me, I'll never lie to my staff. I can never be untruthful to them. Yeah, to me as a leader, that's that's a really bad flaw. Uh, I'll go in and I'll, I'll never say to people, I'm not going to change anything. Of course I'm going to change something because we're going to evolve. We're going to build on success. We're going to learn from our failures. We're going to build on those failures. But I think as a leader, you really need to understand all the levers that if you pull a lever here, something else happens there. You need to understand those nuances before before you start criticising or before you start changing stuff. You need to understand the circumstances and the environment that that was delivered in, and that was very much so in the national forums when you're trying to deliver national policy or or state policy. You need to understand the broader environment that that's being delivered in. You know, and that unfortunately, while we're apolitical in the organisation, anyone who says they don't engage or understand politics, I don't think you can be an effective leader in a community or in a national space without understanding both the little P and big P politics.
0: And Shane, we've heard a lot about the successes and the opportunities within policing and within your career in policing, but I think it's important for those people who are on leadership journeys who are listening to learn about how values informed your growth as a leader.
1: Thanks, Penny. I think it's really important as a leader that you reflect back whenever you're looking at your leadership journey to actually reflect back on some of your failures or or challenges that you've had over the time. And one in particular that uh, I will talk about is probably those early stages of being a leader and and when particularly an organisation like ours where you uh, come up through the organisation and one of the, the challenges you face is still wanting to be seen as you know, uh, connected to the front line of an organisation or, or where your roots of the organisation, you know, where you've come from. And then taking that step into the leadership role around having to make decisions and, and hard decisions uh, for, the, for the better of the organisation. And, and that probably struck with me uh, back when I was an inspector and, and I spoke before about being able to draw my technical knowledge as a water police officer, uh, which was a benefit but one of the failings there was my inability to listen to to what had changed what was modern now and what was what was the views of the officers now and not being uh, sensitive to the times that had changed and being prepared to forge ahead so I, I would say one of my biggest failures there was relying on my own technical knowledge early on without taking the time to understand you know, what was happening in the environment. And again, you know, I've done that in some of my other specialist areas as well. And it's something that I always keep check on now is, have I got the right picture and am I listening to the staff or am I running off my own preconceived ideas or or my own technical knowledge? And I think that's a real key thing to look forward to. The other failure, I, I would say, Early on, I spoke very briefly about this being prepared to engage with risk. I think my other failure early on was about avoiding risk. And I don't think that, you know, you can avoid risk in in a leadership role. And you really need to understand risk. Avoidance of risk is not a good outcome. And when I talk about risk, I'm not talking about a single risk that pops I'm talking about the the broader understanding what has to be done and where you need to have your focus. And as a leader, uh, the best way to avoid risk is to micromanage over top of it. And early on, it was really about, this is a risky area. I've got to be in charge of that. I've got to micromanage over top of risk. I want to avoid risk. I don't want that risk to be there anymore. And what that results in uh, for me, and I was a superintendent at the time, it actually resulted in a catastrophic outcome in my area because you took your vision away from the big picture and you focused on a single area. So I think as a leader, you've got to be prepared to dive down into what you need to dive down into, but don't stay there too long. You know, satisfy yourself that there's adequate controls and measures in place, but get back up to where a leader should be and make sure that you're looking at the entire system and not just one area. So Uh, really I'd say embrace your failures there's many of them they don't have to be big could be a conversation you've had and you've walked away from that conversation going you know I really didn't handle that situation that well and probably one of my key learnings out of it even today uh, I still keep a reflection journal not every day I don't keep a diary but you know when things don't quite go so well you've got to find that time to sit back and reflect and say what was my part in in that not going so well
0: Shane, thank you for taking us on a journey through the early part of your leadership career in the Queensland Police Service. You're a storyteller, and through the art of narrative, you have shared vignettes that capture you across a range of roles as you build your leadership career. In each of the vignettes, you provided us with context, experience, challenges, rewards and takeaways for others on leadership journeys. You've been so generous and in typical mentoring manner, you have taken the time to demonstrate that a leadership journey is multifaceted, filled with opportunity, risk, challenges and rewards. And above all of that, that leadership is a lifelong journey of learning about yourself. I'm really looking forward to part two of our conversation. When you're going to take us on a journey through your senior and executive leadership roles and provide deep insights into your current and most rewarding Assistant Commissioner role as Operations Commander COVID-19 with QPS. Thank you again, Shane.
1: Thank you, Penny. It's been great to be here. Even just talking about this today, it's been a a good reflection back on some leadership points that you should always take time to reflect on. So, thank you, Penny.
0: So, thanks for joining me for today's episode of What Leaders Know. You can access show notes from today's episode and you'll be able to tap into resources on my website, whatleadersknow.com. I look forward to your company next week when we'll explore part two of our conversation with Shane Shalepi. Until then, please stay safe.